I need to stop doing it. <laughs> yes, because I'm talking about Russia, you see. It's very different. <laughs> what sort of Russian accent is that? That's Sean Connery. You wouldn't understand. You're too young. David Cunliffe remains about as popular in the Labour caucus as a pussycat at Gareth Morgan's house. Look, this is a la-la budget. When my eyebrow goes up, it's a joke. The police still arrest criminals in New Zealand. We've tried cannabis prohibition for the past 40 years. The fact is, that was a boring, useless speech. Zip it, sweetie, I'm getting there. Mr. Speaker, they say a week is a long time in politics. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Iron Duke podcast, your weekly recap of all things policy and politics, where we run you through our peaks and our pits, interesting bits, and anything that fits from Aotearoa and around the globe. I am Maddie Burgess-Smith and with me is Senior Consultant Byron Terrace. It's great to be back for another week of the Iron Duke podcast here with you, Madison, this week. Thanks, buddy. We've got uh, Rob Ason from the Centre of Strategic Studies at uh, Victoria University of Wellington to discuss the ongoing Russia Ukraine war. We'll also be discussing the cost of living crisis, the end of MIQ, the merger between Radio New Zealand and TV New Zealand, and last but not least, our own response to the Russian-Ukraine invasion. Maddie, take us away. Well, I'm going to start with my pick of the week, and that it is check-out time for MIQ. Uh, The government have made the announcement that only four of the 32 MIQ facilities will remain come June, and I think that is starting to signal that MIQ is well and truly over. Thank God for that. What that means for, for everyone else, though, is that there are not only 28 hotel facilities across the country coming back online that will be able to cater to all of the tourists who are, uh, who are inevitably going to flock back here, but it also means that there's over 200 nurses, there's a number of police staff, there's only over 600 members of the Defence Force who can now go back to whatever it was they did before. And we know that we've got massive shortages across our healthcare system. The defence staff, I, I don't really know what defence staff do. Maybe you could enlighten me, role play, uh, desktop yeah, just, warfare, uh, if they can of, go back if, to that. If you've heard of LARPing, that's basically <laughs> what it is. Live action role play, uh, that's the what they do. The defence force can yeah. go back to that. Um, apologies in advance, we'll probably have to cut that out. I mean, frankly, I'm looking at. I'm looking forward to staying at the uh, Ibis Rotorua again. Bring it back. I, I can't name a single New Zealander who hasn't, hasn't missed that. Minister Hipkins is definitely still figuring out what might be needed of a national quarantine capacity in the future. If there is another roll-through of a different variant of virus, will we have to bring it back? I'm unsure. The government is pointing towards, you know, perhaps building some purpose-built facilities. That'd be shit. Can you imagine how crap that would be? Yeah, no, I've, um, I have lived in uh, army barracks. And frankly, uh, they were built in the 1940s. And I imagine that's the kind of technology that I'd use to build purpose-built quarantine facilities. Yeah. The other thing that's happened in the, in the kind of COVID space is isolation times have dropped from 10 days down to seven days. We're moving on. We're over it. Bring on the next normal. It's going to be really interesting uh, going from the kind of ad hoc MIQ. That's what it was set up. It was very ad hoc. Mm. They systemised it really quickly. I mean, my take is that they'll set up kind of a national quarantine service or something like yeah. that with a with a niche name and it'll and be run out I don't of some know, niche I don't actually know that. who will end up having to go through it because we're going to get to a point where we no longer have vaccine mandates and you yeah. no longer have to be vaccinated to get on an aeroplane. Yeah, exactly. So let's just send them all out to Symes Island. Yeah, well, they can hang out with the uh, the Tuataras and the sick people. That'll basically be Soames Island. Fantastic merger on Soames Island right there. Well, and, uh, speaking of mergers, uh, Maddie, my pit of the week is the government's proposal to merge Radio New Zealand and TV New Zealand into one super public broadcasting entity that doesn't really solve any of the issues yeah. that we've got in broadcasting at the moment, but just they're going to do it for fun, really. I only use one of those services. 
is that Radio New Zealand podcast yeah, by yeah, any chance? Yep, just the Radio New Zealand podcast. Didn't realise that TVNZ was still a thing. Television New Zealand obviously have a number of TV channels that people know and love. You know, TVNZ1, TVNZ2, uh, Duke, I believe, is what a is TVNZ that? product. I, I wouldn't have a clue. Um, but they've also got TVNZ um, Online, which is a streaming service that's subpar. Oh, yes. Um, I've watched reality television yeah. on there before. Yep. Yeah, that. Love Island New Zealand edition. Hello. <laughs> Love Palmerston North. What a disaster. <laughs> Love Palmy. Um, anyway, so the, the government wants to merge these two entities because it believes that public broadcasting needs to be brought into the limelight when it comes, public good broadcasting I should be clear about. But what that is trying to solve in New Zealand is not quite clear because right now Radio New Zealand's charter dictates that that's what it should do and it's also got you know an online presence, it's got a podcast presence, it's got a YouTube presence, you know Checkpoint uh, with Lisa Rowan, one of New Zealand's best journalists, my, one of my favourite journalists, you know she's got it simulcasted, simulcasted, I can't say the freaking word. I hope Lisa's listening to this. Yeah she's great um, on YouTube so that's already got that kind of digital component and TV New Zealand which is a state owned enterprise at the moment so it's got a profit uh, imperative although it doesn't pay any dividends to the government because it doesn't make much money because it's not a very good business but that's okay, that's a business question not a public broadcasting question. And frankly, the way that the government has proposed to do it, i.e. leaving everything up to the establishment board, we're going to put it to a working group, but we're going to give it a different name, Mm. and then they'll say why we should do this, is a complete policy failure, because they haven't actually said what the problem is they're trying to solve. What do you think is more likely to succeed, this merger or the DHB merger? DHB merger by a long shot. There's not much detail into the merger between RNZ. The boards are not very well aligned with each other. There's also, if you don't like commercial, you know how, um, you know when you're on Radio New Zealand, you yes. don't have commercial ads, right? Yes. It's just basically you just the have government propaganda. Uh, coming up on the panel with Wallace Trap, that kind of shit. Yeah. Uh, that's all the advertising you get on RNZ. TVNZ has a commercial imperative. Mm. And then Chris Farfoy has the audacity to say they run like oh, three waters ads and stuff. Yeah, okay, we won't talk about that. Um, <laughs> Chris Farfoy has the audacity to say this new entity actually won't be ad free. So, so what's the point? I'm like, okay, so I listen to Morning Report because it is ad-free. Yeah. If I if that had ads, see you later. I'm BBC World Service. So frankly, With reports and analysis seven days a week. Yeah, that's a good one. This does open the government up to being accused of buying friendly journalists again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That whole team of $55 million line, which I personally disagree with completely, it can give those people that believe that the government's buying journalists off with uh, public funding, it gives them a bit more ammunition, and I'm worried about that. Mm. So that's really pissing me off this week. Maddie, what is your pit? My pit is grocery prices have risen by 5.9%. Part of me doesn't get it. New Zealand makes enough food to feed 40 million people a year. So why is it that we are all kind of frisked at the checkout? We know that there is a supermarket duopoly. We know that we are susceptible to export prices. We know that we're at the bottom of the world. We've got a lot of supply chain issues there. But it has never been more expensive to feed your family in New Zealand than it is right now. We have the fifth most expensive food prices among the 38 OECD countries. Uh, Food and Grocery Council Chief Executive Catherine Rich, who we have had on the podcast before, go back and find that one, said the supermarket duopoly continues to have a chokehold on food prices due to the lack of competition in our market, right? So what has the Commerce Commission done? The Commerce Commission has done sweet airfall. Nice. So 
that links pretty well into this pit as well. Not only are things super expensive, but the solution that we were chasing down to fix it has come up with virtually nothing. They have focused quite intently on creating a favourable market for a third player to come in without actually incentivising them to do so. What they've done is they've said, you know, we're going to remove the covenants off a lot of the land that had been banked by existing supermarkets. They are not going to split the wholesale arms off, which would have helped, and they are not going to break up the duopoly to sell off stores to a, a, a would-be other uh, other retail arm, right? Those things would have helped. They have instead recommended a code of conduct over the supermarket. They've instead recommended a regulator. It is honestly the most big government approach to a market failure I have seen in a long time. Look, there are a number of other issues as to why our groceries are so expensive. We've got the third highest minimum wage in the OECD, soon to be the second highest come April. We've got heap of biosecurity regulation, high cost for packaging. Grocery prices, high commodity prices right now. We are price takers. We're such a small market in the global economy, so we have to take the global price on stuff. We cannot, and for people who are out there that think Fonterra is this big evil empire, it's still only a small proportion of the world's production of milk. It can't influence the global price. It gets the global dairy auction price mm. and that's it. So we unfortunately are on the uh, the cow teats end of the pr- global pricing. And global pricing is on the rise everywhere. Correct. And that's meat. Particularly and that's in the meat primary as well. goods. Yeah. And that's meat as well, right? We've got low economies of scale, our cost of importing, oil's going up, the whole lot. There's a shortage of ships and containers. So what you're saying is you do know why it's quite expensive. Yeah, well, like I, like I do, and I also know what the solutions are, and but the government angry. also knows what the solutions are. I think the reason I've tr- picked this as my pit is in the same week that StatsNZ said, you know, grocery prices have never been higher, the government had an opportunity to turn around and say, hey, whip out the Commerce Commission report. But all that is is a floppy wet receipt in the bottom of your grocery basket. I disagree that the Commerce Commission could have had much to do with that. So let's agree to disagree and move on to your peak of the week. So my peak of the week, which uh, will flow naturally into the conversation that we're going to have with uh, Professor Rob Ason from Victoria University, is that New Zealand finally got the balls, and I'm going to say that really strongly, to stand up to Russia. They put in a little bespoke Russia sanctions bill. It banned the sale, it banned the, uh, it banned a whole lot of assets from Russian oligarchs coming to New Zealand. It banned a whole lot of financial transactions and travel from uh, people that are support the Putin regime to New Zealand. And it also sent very strong signals to our private sector market to stop their operations. Uh, in Russia. We've seen a number of companies take the lead, and I've talked about this last week, I'm going to talk about it again, because Main Freight, Sanford, and Fonterra have all taken their operations in Russia and just stopped it. There'll be a whole host of other companies in New Zealand that have. Those are the three that I've seen, and those are the three that I think are taking a really big lead. This is important for us to be seen to be part of the global community. To show kindness. This is not kindness. Russia has not shown any kindness to Ukraine. In fact, the disinformation that's coming out of Russia right now is immense, and we've only got kind of social media on the ground to thank for a bunch of the truth that can kind of come out mm. from, uh, from you know, hospitals, maternity hospitals being bombed with pregnant women giving birth. Yeah, shit like that's insane. I think it's important to acknowledge that we are still behind the global eight ball on this. It took us 11 days to put any sign of pa- any kind of meaningful sanctions package together. Sure, we tra- you know, in the first time we banned Vladimir Putin from coming to New Zealand. Yeah. Oh yeah, we're going to take a big strong stand and say Vlad can't come here. Well, guess how many times he's been to New Zealand? Zilch. He was due to come here for APEC and guess what happened? COVID. Cancelled. Done. He came here via, that's right, Zoom. And that's <laughs> not coming to New Zealand. So Also, like internationally we have seen strongest sanctions. Yeah, we have. And f- there is more we could be doing. And you said kindness. You said that word that we believe and we like kind of liberal democracy and all that kind of stuff. We took... Ever 11 days to do anything about this. 
And I think that bullshit that comes out of the beehive sometimes about caring about other things going on, and this is not to belittle any other war that's ever happened, right? This is here, this is now, it's taken New Zealand too long to respond with very weak sanctions, and essentially if we're going to put our money where our mouth is, we should probably care about what's happening to liberal democracies uh, at the expense of autocracies. And that brings us to our wonderful conversation we're going to have with Professor Robert Ason from Victoria University. Let's see what he has to say. We'll bring him in on the Zoom box. Uh, Robert, thank you so much for joining us on the Iron Duke podcast. Uh, for those that don't know, Rob Ason is uh, one of New Zealand's premier professors in the strategic studies space, currently teaching at the Centre for Strategic Studies at Victoria University of Wellington. So kia ora and welcome, Rob. Kia ora, Byron and Maddie. Great to, great to be with you. And, and, and unfortunately, in a sense, the topic is, is a pretty desperately sad one, but an important one, obviously. It is. So obviously today's conversation will be about Russia's invasion of the Ukraine and the difficulties and challenges for the world around that. So I think to set the scene, can you describe the the background and the history of the current conflict, including the the Donbass issues in Ukraine as well? From some observers' perspective, this is not a brand new war, a brand new campaign, but in some ways a continuation of what occurred in 2014 with Russia's annexation of Crimea and then also the intrusion of some Russian forces and Russia's support for separatist forces in the eastern part of Ukraine. And after that, for many years, particularly the eastern parts of Ukraine, an ongoing stalemate, you know, some outbreaks of violence too. In that sense, that situation never was fully peacefully resolved. But what we see now is something obviously on a much bigger and more catastrophic scale. Now, some of that has occurred through those eastern areas. And so Russia is seeking to expand the areas over which it has de facto influence. But it's also, of course, trying to basically remove the chance for Ukraine to have access to the sea to the south. And then also, of course, you've got forces that have come in from Belarus and you've got forces that have come in from other parts of that sort of northeastern part. So, you know, it's a full-scale invasion. The, the reasons for Russia's decision-making, sometimes that's one of the hardest questions to answer. Yeah. I think if you just think about Russia's interests and you think about Russian dissatisfaction, if you like, with the status quo, it's still hard to understand quite why this chosen method would be appropriate because it was bound to generate an enormous amount of international outcry. Although I don't think that Mr. Putin and his colleagues quite anticipated how big that outcry would become. No, I don't um, think they did. Yeah. So if you look at it through a Russia interest lens, I mean, it is a Russian tradition of wanting basically to be surrounded by governments that defer to Moscow's preferences. Yeah. And those preferences would include, for example, that Ukraine not become a member of the European Union or NATO. Why is that? What's the, what's the threat of the EU? Yeah, it's a really good question to ask. Putin was wanting to, to establish for Russia a Eurasian economic sphere. You might remember at that time New Zealand was conducting free trade agreement negotiations, and those would have really not just been with Russia, but with some of its Eurasian partners. Influence, despite what Mao said, doesn't just come from the barrel of the gun. In fact, Putin is finding that the barrel of the gun doesn't get you as nearly as much influence as he would have liked. That influence comes from economic sources of power as well. Having a EU member on your doorstep representing those liberal values. The other day I heard Zelensky, the Ukrainian leader, talk about his country as progressive, democratic and European. That sort of identity, that connection, that looking west, not to Moscow, but in a sense to Brussels. And so the EU in that sense was a challenge. But of course, NATO is as well, because NATO has that strong military element. And so one of the things that has clearly got under Putin's skin is the idea that Zelensky has accelerated Ukraine's desire to join NATO 
that would basically mean that all the members of NATO were committed to come to Ukraine's defence if it was attacked. And that might also mean the placement of significant NATO forces. So you can understand there's a logic there. There's no surprise. That doesn't necessarily mean creating the old Soviet Union. It doesn't necessarily mean, for example, taking over the Baltic states as well. It doesn't necessarily mean making sure that Poland and Hungary and the former Soviet bloc come back. Ukraine has a particular place in that thinking about Russia's sense of its neighborhood. And clearly, I think he wants Russia to be on an equal footing with the United States and Europe. Mm. maybe using this conflict as a way of trying to do that, to say, we are going to shape Europe. You know, you need to consider us. He wants to impose his will on Ukraine. He sees Zelensky as a personal challenger and he wants him out of the way. He also may have an idea that he can build, after 20 or so years effectively in power, he can build his position. He's, in a sense, got more power than he ever has, but his regime is now quite old. How does he sustain or create new support. With that in mind, in terms of, of delivery there, we're at day 14 of the war now. What is yeah. the state of things on the ground? The state of things on the ground is not what Putin and his close colleagues would have wanted or anticipated. Mm-hmm. I think they had hopes for a very quick military success. They could surround the Ukrainian capital very quickly, that Zelensky's government would somehow collapse, that Russia would end up in a position of significant influence in the parts of Ukraine that it wanted to control, and that, in a sense... The fighting might be quite severe, but it would not drag on and drag on and drag on. What we've got now is a situation where things are are dragging on. The Russian advance has not been as quick and as militarily effective as I'm sure Russia's planners were thinking, although quite what they were thinking and quite what they knew about what Putin wanted is is an interesting Mm -hmm. question. How many of them really knew that this was about to happen when they were in those exercises in Belarus and things like that? But the Russian advances have stalled, particularly with respect to the movement of forces down from the north. Russia's military successes have not been as quick as Putin would have sought. If Russian forces can't achieve those goals quickly, and so we are seeing these attacks on urban areas, these these attacks on civilians, these attacks on on housing areas, on hospitals, not necessarily because there is any assurance that this is going to lead to those political outcomes, because it's certainly unlikely to sway the view of Ukrainians in, in Moscow's direction. But I think that one of the things about this war that has struck so many observers is how strong the Ukrainian resistance has been. And that resistance is a military resistance, but it's also a popular resistance. And it's also the first war to be playing out on social media. I would say there have been earlier conflicts where social media has certainly been part of it. But I think the amount of real-time information that observers are able to see, and I mean not officials, but people like me who can who can who can watch it and I think also the other thing that's that's been interesting is the way that the particularly the British and American governments have actually been releasing their assessments to say this is what we think is going on and one of the reasons they've been saying that is to counter the possibility that Russia will use disinformation so one of I think the things the social media point Maddie you make I think is particularly pertinent because Russia's use of social media for disinformation purposes is a very very strong part of its campaign pain. And therefore, some of the Western powers have decided they need to counter that. That part of the conflict, yeah, I think is more attenuated than it's been in other ones. It's a remarkable new battleground when you think about it, that battle for information, that battle for truth. And I note that Russia is now actively destroying internet infrastructure in uh, some parts of Ukraine, so that that truth that you're talking about 
doesn't actually reach the citizens there. One of the things that's been really interesting for me to watch, and you mentioned this earlier in terms of the global response and angering the international community, is the scale of sanctions now placed on the Russian Federation and by proxy Belarus. What's your take on the way that the global community has responded to this? Yeah, I, I think it's been pretty remarkable. At the broader level, what's remarkable is the number of countries who have come out and publicly stated condemnation to what Russia has done. And so that vote at the UN General Assembly, a vote was not possible in the Security Council because of Russia's veto, but that vote in the General Assembly was overwhelmingly opposed to Russia's actions. And only four or five countries stood up and opposed it. China abstained. A whole bunch of normal partners of Russia abstained. Mm. That itself was remarkable. The second thing that I think, though, and it points to your, your point about sanctions, and I mean, one of the reasons, of course, for the sanctions is that the NATO countries and their partners and allies, which are the main sanctioners, they don't want to get into a war with Russia. They don't want this war to escalate to them. They don't want it to spread beyond the confines. So the sanctions are there partly because they are an alternative to the use of force. They are an alternative to something that would much more likely to guarantee an escalation. They have, they have implications for everyone, right? And we're starting to see that already in the US today, saying they'll no longer be taking Russian oil or gas. Yeah. Yeah. What does that look like? You know, if you go back to 2014, there were sanctions leveled on Russia, and some of those remain. So some of New Zealand's partners in the sanctions effort have had sanctions on Russia for quite some time. The scale and the speed of this, Putin has unified Europe, mm. you know, not just the members of the EU, but a whole bunch of other non-EU members have jumped on board. And the way that Germany's approach to foreign policy is shifting. Yep. You know, the cancellation or the, the postponement or the cessation, at least, of, of going online with Nord Stream, but also providing military assistance to Ukraine. Countries that would not normally issue sanctions, Singapore, for example, has come on board. It's still about a third of the number of sovereign states in the international community that are doing the sanctioning. But it is a remarkable set of sanctions, particularly, for example, the sanctions that have put pressure on Russian banks, including the central bank. My sense is that as Russia's military actions escalated, the sanctions effort escalated too. It came in several stages. And we got to the party a little bit late, didn't we, mate? We did. We did. It took us so, a days. Yeah, I think, I mean, but New Zealand has had a long time to think about autonomous sanctions. Australia passed its first autonomous sanctions legislation back in 2011. New Zealand introduced legislation sometime thereafter. Winston Peters then became foreign minister. His view on Russia is much more favourable than most observers. It didn't go anywhere in the first term of the Adern government. National Party have lent its name back to the legislation through Jerry Brownlee. Labour and the Greens pretty much said, no, we don't need that at the moment. It's not necessary. We can focus on UN measures. Those measures, those initial measures were put in place when most of New Zealand's Western partners had moved on to, to stage two and stage three. Yeah. And so once those with the autonomous sanctions legislation now passing in Parliament, New Zealand is now, to use the Prime Minister's language, New Zealand is now more in line with where its partners are. Robert, that, that was a fantastic interview. Thank you so much for your insights. Uh, as is tradition here on the Iron Duke podcast, we always finish with a quickfire hot or not of topical issues. During oh, the okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Can I do, a, can I do a, an abstain? You sure can. This can be like the UN. No worries. <laughs> so, Starlink, Elon Musk's internet connect connectivity via satellites. Not. <laughs> this whole celebrity kind of celebrity billionaire stuff is just too much for me, I'm afraid. Yeah. Here's a one for you with your strategic studies hat on. Yeah. Uh, Migs from Poland 
being given to Ukraine via the US? Well, it's not going to happen. Not at this stage. And lastly, from me, going. Sorry, what's a MiG? It's a fighter jet. It's an old Soviet era aircraft that the Polish aircraft still run because, of course, Poland was part of the Warsaw Pact. Those are aircraft that Ukrainian pilots are trained to fly. Free rapid antigen tests. Yep. And lastly, $15 for a cauliflower. Yeah, that's ridiculous. One of the reasons we moved up to Kapiti Coast is that I can garden more. Well, Rob, thanks so much. Okay, you're welcome. Thanks very much. Okay, Thank cheers. Bye. Bye. In some sad news, we will be taking a week off next week because Byron is heading off to the UK. Yeah, no, off to the UK for a month. I'm going to miss our loyal listeners for, for a little week. But I'll be joining in uh, on the podcast. Uh, by the Zoom box. By the Zoom box the week after so that uh, our ranting and raving shall continue. But uh, Until then, we'll see you in two weeks.